everybody, it's Matt. Before we jump into the show today, I have a major announcement. The Investigator's Toolbox app is live. That's right. You can access this amazing website from your phone. We have versions available on iOS and on Android. All you have to do is visit the App Store and download and get started today. If you're a member of the community already, I encourage you to go in and download a version and uh, get logged in and you can access everything right from your phone. If you're not a member, go check it out. www investigators-toolbox.com or you can go to the app store investigators toolbox hope to see you in the community soon cross tracks case management system that is what we are talking about today are you using a case management system what are you waiting for if you don't use a case management system you really need to look into implementing that into your business regimen I've been at it with Crosstrax now a little over a year, and it's just been a game changer for my business. They are SOC 2 certified, SOC 2 Type 2 certified. If you don't know what that means, it means that their encryption system is second to none. And you have to go through a whole screening process to figure out uh, if you can even qualify for that, and they have. So you know with certainty your data is being protected. I don't think there's another case management system out there that offers that same ability to have the SOC 2 Type 2 certification. As you guys know, I've been uh, you know singing the praises of Crosstrax, and uh, I really believe in this product, and I believe you should check it out. Contact Brad, contact Pat, uh, one of the team members over there, and see if it's right for you. Crosstrax case management system, check it out today. Check out the PI Institute of Education at piinstitute.com. Since 1989, Kelly Riddle has been teaching on subjects such as surveillance, nursing home investigations, insurance fraud, domestic investigations, hidden assets, and accident scene investigations. The PI Institute of Education is a featured learning partner in the investigatorstoolbox.com. So check out the free content on the site, then visit the Institute for more great savings on additional classes. Welcome to PI Perspectives. Today, Matt welcomes Stuart Dropney from Stumore Investigations. Stu's had an incredible career, and today the guys focus on counterfeit investigations and intellectual property theft. If you think you know about this type of work, be prepared to learn something more. Please welcome Stuart Dropney and your host, private investigator, Matt Spare. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of PI Perspectives. This is Matt Sperry, your host. Today, I have a special guest, somebody who I met in New Jersey last year, or actually it was the year before. I don't COVID. My COVID timing is, is off here. I want to welcome Stuart Robney to the uh, program from Stumar Investigations. Stu, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and thank you, Matt, for having me today. Yeah, such an honor, man. You've been in the industry for a, a long time, and uh, I, I met you at a New Jersey Association event uh, a while back, and uh, we hooked up again on LinkedIn, and uh, I, I really am impressed by your background and what you've done within this industry and how you've given back to the industry. Uh, it's quite impressive, man. So tell me a little bit. How did you um, how did you get into the industry? Well, it... Uh goes back a long time, Matt. And uh, back in uh, high school uh, in 1977 in Vineland, New Jersey, where I grew up, wow. I was the yearbook photographer. And uh, that expertise had lent my name to others and uh, soon family, friends, uh, and uh, some attorneys uh, gave notice to me and contacted me and asked if I would take photographs of some accident scenes, some vehicles, some injuries people may have sustained, sidewalks and um, intersections and alike. Yeah. And um, that continued for uh, quite some time. And then when I was uh, in uh, college, I attended Temple, a family friend introduced me to a local PI who handled a lot of a plaintiff personal injury, insurance defense, and some family law. His name, will, uh, my mentor was Bud. Okay. And Bud utilized my skills in photography and soon thereafter in videotography where you had those um, heavy cameras on your shoulders. Yeah, I remember You this. had to carry <laughs> another unit to put the VHS tape in. <laughs> and um, so that was uh, quite unique. Yeah. And Bud also began to teach me uh, about the industry, taking witness statements, uh, locates, and um, public record searches, how to do backgrounds. And um, it was a, a life-changing experience. 
and I became very proficient at it. Right. Um, I'm a great talker. Um, matter of fact, a little antidote. Um, when I was very young, um, people used to pay me to stop speaking. <laughs> so that was a perfect um, way to get into the uh, investigative business. And when I was working for Bud, and uh, that was part-time and or full-time, depending on what the needs were, yeah. he um, fell ill and ultimately moved to Florida. And the only thing he left me was his phone number. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Well, the phone continued to ring and people needed services. So I needed to get a private investigation license, which I did at the time. Right. And um, one thing led to another and I networked and my business became larger and a variety of different types of uh, cases uh, came along. Right. And Stumar Investigations was born. And since that time, we're known as a uh, high-end boutique investigative firm that specializes in intellectual property, telecommunications, high stakes litigation, insurance defense, and high value of family law. So that's really, really fascinating. I can only imagine what it was like back when you started doing photography uh, in, in taking pictures and developing and, and really understanding what f-stop is and, and you know how to really operate a camera. I, I think folks these days don't appreciate what it was like taking photos back in the eighties. You had uh, so to have a so light forth. meter. Yeah. Uh, you did not have uh, autofocus. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you did not have instantaneous gratification as we do now with digital photography. Sure. So in those days you uh, used 35 millimeter film and uh, you obtained your photos. You then went to the Photoshop uh, local and or a pharmacy, they would then send the photos uh, out, your film. Right. And in about a week, 10 days later, you got the uh, photographs back and you had negatives yeah. and uh, you saw the uh, photographs that you uh, had. It was much different than you have today. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's amazing. Uh, all the technology and the things that have changed. I mean, I, I started doing this type of work late nineties, um, you know, really as, as a private investigator in 2001 and even the stuff that was, you know, going on back then and available, uh, as to what we can do now is just a, a game changer. I mean, sure. Hagstrom. That's all I'm going to say. Hagstrom. Well, maps. the, uh, Blackberry basically came out in around, uh, around late, uh, 1999, 2000. And your first iPhone generation was about 2006. Yeah. That yeah. was a game changer in uh, our business, sure. as in many others. Yeah, yeah. It's the ability to do so much from your phone is uh, it, it really uh, allows you to look a lot bigger than you actually are, uh, just because you can manage things better. Um, sure, and you don't wear out as many pairs of shoes. That's true. That's true. Uh, so I'm really fascinated how you made that the transition from the personal injury and you know statements and things like that to more of a corporate side and, and getting into that bigger business, that bigger side of this business. How did you identify like, okay, it's time to make that jump and, and let's go all in and, and get that account, you know, get those accounts and do those things. Well, actually um, I didn't make the decision. The decision was made for me because <laughs> uh, one of our uh, litigation clients uh, called up and said that they received a call from a, a firm in Washington, D.C. that wanted to speak with me about an intellectual property case involving counterfeits. Right. And that was a very interesting initial call because I wasn't exactly sure what he was speaking about. Sure. So, um, unfortunately, I couldn't Google <laughs> no, no. So Maybe ask G's if, if you're lucky. <laughs> right? yeah, I had to head off to the library and do a little research. Right. And I, you know, I learned a little bit about uh, intellectual property, you know, and, and uh, then what it encompasses from uh, patent, trademark, copyright. Sure. Now it's even evolved into trade secrets and into trade dress. Ultimately, I received a call from the law firm in Washington who stated that he represents a national company with uh, worldwide fame in a um, national athletic wear, sportswear uh, industry, mm -hmm. and that they had a problem in the Philadelphia area with a brick and mortar store selling uh, counterfeit merchandise bearing their marks. Right. So at that point, I was given some specific instructions and the uh, IPR, uh, Department of Stumar Investigations uh, was born. Wow, that's awesome. 
That's so good. So how many investigators do you have working now for you? We have uh, 20 plus at this point in time, and it goes up and down, uh, mostly up, depending on the uh, caseload, uh, depending on specific expertise, mm -hmm. uh, if we pick up a new line of business, and um, if we uh, need specific persons uh, and or a specific uh, expertise in a specific area. Right, right. That's awesome. Okay, so we are going to jump out and take a, a quick break. And when we come back, I really want to dive in more and explore this world because honestly, I don't know too much about it. And I think it's, it's fascinating what you guys do. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Are you overwhelmed with your current case log? Could you use some help with your skip trace assignments? With Merlin Locate Services, rather than adding staff, you can add an entire skip trace department of licensed private investigators who specialize in skip tracing. Check out MerlinLocate.com today. When you work with Merlin Locate Services, you bring on a valuable experience and trusted extension to your team. SecureFBIDirectory.com is a global network of former FBI special agents who are active in the private investigation, security, and consulting fields. The Secure FBI Directory is the only directory in both print and digital formats founded by FBI special agents for FBI special agents. Special agents know firsthand how invaluable a directory is when looking for a professional located in a particular geographical area with a specific specialty. The Secure FBI Directory covers all continents except Antarctica and features over 80 specialties. If you are a former special agent now conducting private investigations or serving as consultants or security experts, go to securefbidirectory.com to join this elite group of SA and become listed in its global directory. Securefbidirectory.com I want to talk to everybody today about scopenow.com. Scopenow has been a big time sponsor of this program for quite some time. And I just love their service. I've been using them since the beginning. I'm one of their beta customers and it's been so awesome to see them grow into the business that they are today and just how they just keep reinventing themselves and pushing themselves to get more and more information. What it comes down to is, is Scope Now is a tool that you definitely need to use if you do social media investigations, any internet research, and really spending less time digging around and, and uh, looking for information, I think is one of the best points of how Scope Now can help you. Their AI platform, their analytics are amazing. You really get an idea of what you need. You're reducing the time, you're reducing the manpower that you, you're spending on doing this research because they're essentially doing it for you and uh, they're doing it correctly, which is most important. One of the new things that they're actually offering is this flagging system where you can flag behaviors and really highlight and um, look out for fraud. If you're doing a lot of fraud research, uh, this is a fantastic tool and you can set up alerts. So you have uh, particular people that you're looking at, you can actually set up alerts to get notifications when the criteria that you set up is actually um, is flagged and goes off. It's really, uh, really amazing. And their relationship and association analytics are uh, top notch, really uh, cutting edge and really, really cool. When they brought that out on version three, it was a game changer. I mean, really being able to see how people interact together and, and uh, you know, having that relationship you know, analysis is really, really something that's cool. You know, one of the other things about being involved with Scope Now is their ability to offer webinars. Their team is cutting edge on putting together and getting out really, really great content. If you're a member of Scope Now, if you know who they are, you've seen them around on LinkedIn, you'll, you'll know that they're constantly doing webinars on these new websites that are coming out and uh, they're really staying on top of it. And don't forget, uh, any reports that you generate, you can actually white label those reports put your own logos on and, and really make them look professional, which you know could equate to more billing for you as well. So check them out today. It's uh, www.scopenow.com. They're a great, great company. They should be one of the tools in your toolbox, along with whatever kind of uh, search engines you do. Uh, you need to make sure that ScopeNow is a part of that suite. ScopeNow.com. Are you a member of NCISS? Do you know what this great organization does? The National Council of Investigation and Security Services was formed in 1975 to keep a watchful eye on legislation that affects our industry. 
Now more than ever, there are data privacy and DMV issues popping up all over the country. Consider joining and supporting this much-needed watchdog for our industry. Learn more at NCISS.org. Time's running out to attend the first major live event of the year. Scally and Intellinet are hosting a live conference from May 5th until May 7th in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Check out the great lineup at www.scalinv.com. And welcome back to PI Perspectives. This is Matt Sperry, your host, and we're here with Mr. Stumar, Stuart Drobny. Uh, thank you for coming back to the program here and joining us today to talk about intellectual property. So when we left off, you explained uh, this Washington case and how you got into it. So tell me a little bit more about uh, how that case evolved and um, sure. what the outcome was. Well, the case was uh, based in Philadelphia at the time, and the attorney uh, had explained that he wanted to gather uh, evidence so he can go in and file a civil lawsuit in the uh, United States District Court for the Eastern District uh, located in Philadelphia. Right. And part of what he uh, wanted to do uh, was to get a preliminary injunction and also to get an ex parte seizure order. Ex parte seizure order, basically ex parte in Latin means without notice. Right. So we were able to, once we established what we needed to get to, which I'll get to in a moment, that is where it led to. So initially we were given an address of a store and in Philadelphia that was allegedly selling this particular products and they were counterfeit. So we went in and made some buys of t-shirts and sweatshirts and some baseball caps with this famous insignia. Mm -hmm. We ultimately sent the product to the attorney in Washington because we could not take photographs way back then to have them instantaneously. And there was uh, nothing like we have today, whether it's Zoom or Teams, where I can get on the phone with somebody and show them the product. Sure. And I had not been trained at that point in time to specifically understand what was the difference between the real product and the counterfeit. Right. Make a long story short, the attorney uh, received the items and said, yes, in fact, they were counterfeit. So we were to go back and make additional buys at least two or three different times to establish that this was not a fluke. Right. And in fact, they were selling the items. We additionally learned that they were had a printing press in the back of this particular location and an embroidering machine. Oh, wow. (laughs) So um, that information was all documented and all sent off to the attorney. Right. Ultimately, uh, the attorney came into Philadelphia and uh, along with a local counsel, went into court, they filed their lawsuit, and it was for trademark infringement and all kinds of other um, different matters. And we then ultimately testified in court in front of a federal judge regarding the ex parte order. The ex parte order, as I mentioned, is without notice. notice, So there wasn't another side in court. Mm -hmm. So I testified, the lawsuit was filed under seal. And at that point, we made arrangements with the U.S. Marshals. Now, an ex parte seizure order is the civil... um, cousin of the criminal search warrant. Okay. So on a particular Saturday morning with the United States Marshals, they went into this particular retail establishment with the documents and explained there is a seizure, explained all the facets of what was going on. And soon thereafter, the lawyers arrived in the store once uh, order was established. Uh, I arrived along with a number of other Uh, teammates. And we began going through the merchandise and pulling out all the counterfeits and ultimately uh, going into the back room. And there was a silkscreen machine and there were lots of silkscreens. And we pulled the silkscreens that were relative to my client's particular product. And there was also a medium-sized embroidering machine. And I say medium-sized, some of these embroidering machines today are uh, the size of uh, you know forty foot tractor trailers. Wow, they're computerized. Right. These uh, were not computerized; they were done by hand. Right. Ultimately, a larger truck had to be called in because we didn't think that we would uh, 
need it. We had a, a, a U-Haul wow. uh, van and ultimately this large printing press and the screen prints were uh, taken out mm -hmm. and thus uh, Stumar Investigations Intellectual Property Department was born. They conducted our first raid. That's awesome. So I, I'm curious, um, did you get to the point where you were having operatives like go in and, and work on those establishments? Because I've been involved on some of the ends of that. When I first started getting into this business, there was a, uh, I worked for a company that did mystery shopping, but pre-employment screening, but they also did where they, they would have operatives that would watch what was going on in the warehouses and doing things like that. Did you guys get to the point where you had people kind of working in there or everything you developed was just pretty much going into the store and, and uh, making your buys? Well, initially, um, and let me just backtrack for a moment, uh, where I was able to obtain a little bit more subject expertise. I had remembered uh, right after we had done that raid uh, that I had read a story in Philadelphia Magazine about a lawyer in Philadelphia who was known as Mr. Search and Seizure. And uh, I tracked back to the library because again, nothing was online. Right. And I pulled that magazine, got that attorney's name, reached out. We ultimately had lunch and we became uh, lifelong friends. I mean, that was uh, 40 some years ago wow. almost. Wow. And he had been heavily involved in the anti-counterfeiting space uh, of many, many musical artists and concerts and uh, had a vast knowledge of many different aspects of IPR. Right. Ultimately, we went to a convention together that is an organization uh, called the IACC, the right. International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition, and uh, many of the brand owners were there and they had classes and again, learned more about the subject and also got introduced to additional people who had issues in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey uh, specific areas. Right. And that led us to represent um, a number of people and now up to almost 200 different brands uh, worldwide in all aspects from clothing, soft goods, pharmaceuticals, uh, auto parts, right. uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, tobacco products, uh, you name it. And it's being uh, counterfeited because right. counterfeiting is exploding uh, even more than in the past because right. we're in a e-commerce centric economy today. Well, also, I mean, let's look on top of that too uh, with COVID, right? So how have you seen that shift within the past year and a half of folks not being able to physically go out somewhere and buy something? And, the, and there is that more of that e-commerce stuff going on. So how has that shifted your business model and how you approach and attack that situation? Well, um, 2020 was an extraordinarily interesting year for many reasons. Right. Uh, COVID uh, had shut uh, most businesses down, our business uh, as well for a couple of months. And uh, soon thereafter, all of the, as you mentioned, all of the retail establishments and brick and mortar and distributors and all the manufacturers who are involved in counterfeiting, many of them shut down. Others switched into uh, selling uh, personal protection items. We noticed that for yeah. sure <laughs> on the internet. You'll see us. Haven't seen any around. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we, we were um, working on cases and all of a sudden, you know, they're offering masks, they're offering okay. respirators, they're offering, um, you know, um, Perel, they're offering yeah. all kinds of different items. And thus those were counterfeit possibly or substandard materials, right. but the counterfeiters themselves, they switched the business right. and the ones who didn't relied on e-commerce to have the products delivered to personal person's homes. Right. Whereas previously, we would concentrate our efforts on brick and mortar stores and then follow the uh, leads down the line. Sure. Sometimes it started at a particular flea market uh, with a buy and then identification and then working ourselves back as well as uh, famous boardwalks in New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland. And uh, those stores weren't uh, open. Some of them were open in 2020. Uh, however, the um, traffic was way down. Yeah, foot traffic, and nothing. It, it was it yeah. was a difficult year for uh, everyone, including yeah. the counterfeiters.
years, except when they sold the counterfeit um, PPE equipment. Right. I guess that would be my next thing. So did you have this whole thing of, of uh, like being involved in Asia and, and all these fake masks and these N95s that, that were not really up to standard coming into this country and other countries? Were you involved in any of that stuff? We weren't specifically involved in any of that. Whatever information we uh, obtained, we turned over to federal law enforcement mm. uh, through our uh, undercover workings and networks. But the federal government and uh, with the on the auspice of uh, local government and state, uh, they did a very fine job and are continuing to do a great job at enforcing uh, these uh, particular uh, issues. And now that supply has kind of caught up Right. Uh, the uh, counterfeiters have now come back to their original uh, goods, whether it would be sneakers, whether it be T-shirts, whether it would be auto parts, whether you know, it would be um, pharmaceuticals, you name it, whatever it may be, they went back. Yeah. Yeah. There are, everyone's always looking for the next thing to get into, right? But you can always go back to, to the good old faithfuls. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of um, sports being played right. on a national level sure. and college level. And so a lot of the counterfeits that would normally come out weren't. So some of them went back to the old standards of handbags, mm. uh, famous uh, artists, and there weren't any major new movies coming out. I mean, mm. I remember back in the day working off for a um, company that had a famous uh, movie out and or ha- had a, the lead had a mask on. Uh, much like we wear today. Yeah. And there were counterfeits of those products all over the place, I'm sure. as in with uh, television shows and or specific uh, toys. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Um, so what would you say to the investigator who is like, has a passion for doing this stuff and says, I would really like to, you know, find my niche in, in getting involved in do- doing this type of investigative work. Where do you begin? How do you, how do you start doing well, this stuff? Um, in the United States right now, specifically, there are about uh, 12 investigators, uh, firms, and maybe about six that are heavily involved in doing it. So 12 investigative firms out of the 12, six are doing this on a regular basis. Right. And they cover, uh, we all have kind of a geographical area right. and the uh, brand owners understand that. So they will call that particular investigator. If there's something going on in Los Angeles, right. there are a couple of very fine investigators in Los Angeles that specialize in IPR or maybe in Dallas or maybe in Chicago or Florida. And um, that is the way it works now. But to your specific question as to how investigators can get involved now, they are involved uh, often. I just had a case uh, where there was an investigator in uh, Louisiana that I needed to refer a case to. Right. And I referred a counterfeit case to her and we spoke about it and I gave her pointers on what needed to get done and how it should be done. The reports, chain of evidence and things of that nature. Yeah. That is how I've uh, helped other investigators. Others come across these products by accident and call me or others to find out what do they do. And then we get them involved working with us doing the boots on the ground and sometimes doing making the buys if they're able to and furtherance to the case, whether there needs to be surveillance done, whether there needs to be uh, backgrounds done. So we try to get the a local investigator who has boots on the ground to handle those matters as yeah. anyone might want to do oh, makes sense. to ensure that they're getting the information that's needed. Yeah. And they're definitely going to have relationships that you don't have, you know, they, exactly. They, and they, that they, leads they, to sometimes with law enforcement, mm-hmm. Um, and our interaction with law enforcement. Sure. Sure. Well, shout out to Brianne. She's awesome. I love her. <laughs> She's a dear friend of mine. Uh, I'm glad it worked out. Um, so, uh, that's, that's really, really fascinating. So really like there is a way for the average investigator to get into this. There, there's definitely a role I think for everybody to play, uh, on doing things. And, and I, I appreciate that you take the time to instruct and, and really make sure that they're setting themselves up for a win with you. Uh, so there is that teaching aspect to it that you've, you've gotten involved with and you actually go and you speak on this stuff. So tell me a little bit how you got into that and uh, you know, where you find yourself speaking these days and doing, doing that kind sure. of stuff. Well, I had mentioned a law enforcement uh, aspect of intellectual property. And um, oftentimes if a client um, at the onset says to us, 
uh, and one of my questions, are you looking to go civil? Are you looking to go criminal? How do you want to uh, handle this? And on the civil end, there are lawsuits. There are ex parte seizures. There are also cease and desist letters right. that are uh, delivered to the individuals. And sometimes the cease and desist letters go along with what we call a knock and talk. Mm-hmm. We go to the store. If it's brick and mortar, it may be a flea market. It could be a distributor. It could be somebody who received a, a counterfeit item in the mail. And we would go and speak to that person and backtrack mm-hmm. with. So we um, liaise with uh, law enforcement all the time on cases and we prepare the cases um, as well as we possibly can and then give it to law enforcement. But, and that is where a lot of my speaking engagements and a lot of my interaction has occurred where law enforcement in Pennsylvania, for example, wasn't sure how to go about handling counterfeit cases because it was a state law that I was intricately involved in helping get passed by the Pennsylvania state legislature. And uh, that was a specific, the Pennsylvania anti-counterfeiting law. And that specifically had guidelines because previously there was no specific case on a state level, a law rather, that dealt with counterfeiting. And counterfeiting is probably one of the world's largest illegitimate businesses. And there is is no shortage of cases uh, once developed. So I've had the opportunity to speak in front of um, whether it would be a New Jersey licensed private investigation association, the Pennsylvania association, uh, the um, Texas association, um, many, many law enforcement organizations from district attorney's offices, state uh, and local law enforcement in various jurisdictions. And I give them an opportunity uh, by my uh, presentation to explain what counterfeiting is, what counterfeiting isn't, what type of case is being looked at. And if there's four or five items, you know, we're not, you know, going to go after someone that may be handled on a different level. Sure. Sure. Um, so are, are you typically like solicited to speak at these events and all that, or, or, or do you actually submit proposals to talk at different places? Oftentimes uh, it's non-solicitation on my part. People are calling me up. For example, when we work with law enforcement, we had a case in New Jersey with the New Jersey State Police. And we worked up the case, gave it to New Jersey State Police, and they did a wonderful job ultimately arresting a number of people in this particular case, which led to a distributor, which led to a warehouse that we were also involved with. Sure. And after that case, there was a uh, statewide meeting of law enforcement. And one of the topics was intellectual property, anti-counterfeiting. So I was asked to come speak about that. And we had, uh, for lack of a better word, a show and tell. We had all the counterfeit (laughs) merchandise laid out. We had legitimate merchandise laid out. We also had um, pamphlets that would be an easy guide for law enforcement and specifically made for law enforcement to give them some insight as to whether or not they have come across a counterfeit item or not. Of course, Mm -hmm. they would need positive proof, but uh, for their initial investigation or their initial look-see, these pamphlets and other presentations, and now they're online, the presentations for law enforcement, uh, allow them to make better judgments when they're out in the field. Sure. So where would you say the biggest hotbed in the United States is for, for counterfeit merchandise? Obviously, um, everyone thinks of New York City. Right, big cities. Think right. of Canal Street. Yeah. And uh, there is a plethora of- I never uh, bought anything from there, ever. <laughs> there is a plethora of uh, merchandise there. New York has a very strict state criminal statute. Yeah. And my um, fellow investigators uh, who handle intellectual property in New York, though we're licensed in New York- we don't specifically handle the uh, intellectual property in New York because again, as we mentioned earlier, it's very important for boots on the ground to have those contacts. Number one, number two, some of the intellectual property and brand protection came out of New York city and some of the leading cases. Uh, For example, in New York, there was a case uh, that was created by uh, the brand owners and they're fine uh, outside attorneys where it was landlord tenant liability, where they began Mm. to hold the landlords liable for what their tenants were selling. That's awesome. They were put on notice that they were involved in nefarious activities. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Right. 
definitely another avenue, another insurance policy to dip into. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and there are regular um, raids uh, on uh, the Canal Street area, distributors, etc. Yeah. And uh, some of the stories and actions by the uh, counterfeiters are amazing. I mean, yeah. they can shut you, you know, canal street. Well, oh, no, no, no. I've never been there. Oh, <laughs> I've never okay. bought a firework or a Chinese star or anything like that. I've never done that. <laughs> All right. Well, canal street is uh, a long street and uh, down uh, town. And there are numerous, numerous businesses offering for sale counterfeit merchandise from handbags to luggage, to pens, to jewelry, to the headphones you're wearing, to uh, anything you can quite imagine. Sure. However, they become uh, quite um, proficient at knowing when the investigators are coming, who are the investigators, for yeah. example, yeah. what they look like, and they can shut down Canal Street within 10 minutes. Yeah. All those stores have metal grates, yep. and they could pull those metal grates down. Oh. I've heard stories, and I've even seen when raids are occurring that they closed the uh, grate and there's customers in those uh, stores. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, I, I mean, as an investigator doing work in New York city, you're talking about Chinatown and down, down in that area, it's a whole different animal. I, I mean, even trying to interview witnesses, trying to, you know, get things done, serving subpoenas. It's a very protected community. And I think there, there is that sense of, yeah, here they're coming, you know, shut down everything, uh, you know, time to close up shop. Um, I've seen it and it's, it's impressive the way it, the community sticks together over there. And there's also been violence towards, uh, law enforcement officers who yeah. have been down there also, uh, attorneys and other, uh, individuals, yeah. uh, as a result, because you're taking a lot of money and dollars out of their space. Oftentimes as well, the merchandise is not owned. It's more on consignment. Yeah. So if you lose the merchandise and you're a store owner, you're on the hook for that merchandise. Yeah. I think a lot you see uh, down there these days and correct me if I'm wrong. Cause you're, you're in the know on this stuff is like health supplements. Uh, you know, people that, that are, are buying, um, you know, the, these crazy, the latest fads and, and, and things like that. Like I, I, I have been the boots on the ground in both downtown and in Flushing in Queens. I'm keeping it local here uh, of going into these shops and it's just simply, you know, wear a camera, go and make a buy, and they're not supposed to be selling this particular flavor of whatever, you know, and just, you know, go in and, and, you know, do your buys. And to me, I, I have a friend of mine who actually happens to be Asian. So I would take her along with me, you know, and we'd have this whole thing that we would do. And it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun doing it. I remember. Counterfeiting, I yes. Counterfeiting. Um, it co covers all aspects of um, nationalities and everybody is involved in it. Absolutely. And yeah. And depending yeah. on a specific neighborhood, right. those particular um, ethnic groups may be more heavily involved than others. Yeah. All right. So thank you for that, because that is a great point here. We don't want to pigeonhole our Asian American friends no, and all that. It, it is. It doesn't know any race. You're, you're right. It's really the community itself. Uh, where these things are, are buying because you, you sell to your own community because they're safe. you like, they feel safe, right? I'm not going to get in trouble. I know I'm, I'm buying something that's not hundred percent legit, but it's, it's in the community. Right. So uh, yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. And it's uh, also important to note that oftentimes the products are being sold in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. Another good point yep. uh, to the local uh, people in the area. And yeah. sometimes, and more than often, uh, most of the times the products are so good and not really understanding that they need to be sold in certain places, yeah. but seeing the product as being a famous trademark, the individual uh, average person goes out and makes that buy yeah. and that buy though, even for themselves and the product becomes, uh, unwearable or tarnishes or, uh, does not work. Uh, that watch that you spent $25 on that's right. normally $5,000 stops working. Yeah. So what happens is the back story of counterfeiting comes alive. And what I mean by that is counterfeiters, the people who are making this product often use child labor, mm -hmm. human trafficking. They uh, utilize um, organized crime and also terror networks. 
and I can explain how that all uh, comes together. The organized crime and the terror networks are utilizing the sale of counterfeit merchandise as a way to generate cash. Right. And since it's all black market and it's non-taxable items, uh, those dollars and that cash are tremendous. And there has been direct links to terror activities. Actually, I worked on a case with yeah. the Joint Terrorist Task Force and, and definite connections. And the First World Trade Center bombing, bombing uh, in 1993, Three. I believe, yeah, 1991 or 1993, 93, yeah. they proved that a lot of the financing came from counterfeit cassette tapes, if you remember cassette tapes. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's really, really fascinating. I was watching a documentary the other day um, that is called, this is, a, this is a Robbery, right? So it was about the Isabel Gardner uh, Museum that was uh, $500 million worth of art was taken up in Boston. And they were talking about the... Um, the currency of art and how art is actually um, within the black market. It's a great way to, to trade value back and forth without actually trading money, right? The value behind these particular items um, are, is established. I think it's something like 10% of the value of the actual artwork is what you'll get on the black market. Super fascinating, man. I'd never known about that. Uh, really great doc to check out actually. Uh, artwork, a matter of fact, uh, counterfeit artwork and stolen artwork uh, is a um, big problem, and uh, we do not get involved in that. But uh, Homeland Security um, in this area, the Wilmington office uh, has a great expertise and has been doing amazing jobs on uh, recovering uh, stolen art and, sure. more importantly, identifying counterfeit uh, high-end uh, artwork. Right. Right. You know, the other thing, uh, keeping in mind here too, in New York that, that we get involved with sometimes is the, uh, the reservations and tobacco, uh, the, the, the sale of, uh, you know, certain tobacco items, uh, on the reservations and documenting all that. So that's something as a field investigator that we've actually helped out some out of state investigation companies and in gathering information. So that, that stuff goes on too. I I've mean, been involved yeah. in counterfeit, uh, tobacco, uh, papers, tobacco, um, e-cigarettes yeah. uh, and uh, alike. Yeah. And uh, the reasoning for the prop, and especially in those three areas, oftentimes, um, especially in the cigarette paper industry, often the glue uh, that you're licking to put your uh, tobacco in uh, could be, um, and if it's counterfeit, could be yeah. poisonous. Yeah. Uh, it kind of takes me back to reminding me a little bit of that one Seinfeld. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was thinking about but Seinfeld. that is, in fact, uh, <laughs> it is true. And um, in addition uh, to that, there are um, chemicals. Uh, we've had counterfeit right. cologne cases where the uh, chemical content has been returned with urine, with um, other types of poisons, and you're putting that on your body sometimes. Right. There's also counterfeit makeup. And again, they have um, arsenic in it. They have various other chemicals. And uh, oftentimes people are using eyeshadow, yeah. eyeliner, and they get um, amazing. Uh, they get uh, not amazing. They just get horrific uh, eye infections or yeah. other skin infections. Yeah. And it traces back to counterfeit merchandise, right. which is a big problem for the, for the manufacturer of the legitimate merchandise. Because no one's saying that they got an infection from a counterfeit um, eyeliner. What they're going to say is, I got an yeah. infection from Stuart Drobny's right. eyeliner. Right, right, right. Now, so there becomes a liability issue right. and also becomes a reputation issue. And yeah. that is why many companies um, go after the counterfeiters because have to. besides yeah. the dollars and cents, yeah. it, it, there is a health issue as well. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a real problem, and and uh, you know, rest in peace, Susan, for the envelopes. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it, it it really is a problem. I remember back in the day, um, a buddy of mine I went to college with had gotten a job with a very well known investigation company, one of the the best of the best, right? And their their contract was with a um, a um, a soda company, and his job was to go around and buy soda in New York. And the soda had actually stamps that it was supposed to be only sold in like New Jersey. So they were looking, you know, for, for soda. And I guess they do this with cigarettes too, with taxes and things like that, where things that are supposed to be sold in a particular state or bought cheaply, same thing with the reservations, right? They're bought cheaply out there and then they're resold for a markup somewhere else. 
um, not necessarily counterfeit, but not following the way they're supposed to do things. So there's a whole market on that as well, right? Yeah, ab ab absolutely. And um, particularly, um, there is a problem with um, also folks buying uh, former vets who've served our country yeah. uh, wonderfully. Uh, at a lot of the military bases, cigarettes are sold um, without uh, the additional taxes as well. Yeah. And that uh, creates a problem. And again, this, these monies are being taken out of our economy, sure. which affects all of us, tax dollars, uh, building of roads, building of schools, all of these things create an underground economy. Right. That's why we need to care about counterfeit merchandise. Yeah. And that is why uh, law enforcement needs to take it, which they do seriously. Yeah. However, they have to weigh their cases and they have to weigh the criminality and their abilities to get funding and or the ability to handle these kinds of cases and have the specific knowledge. And that's sure. why myself and many others uh, teach law enforcement and hold seminars for them yeah. around the country. Yeah. And, you know, it, it Speaking about like trademarking and, and uh, service marks and things like that, you know, I, from, from my own business, actually I went and I did it. Right. And I, it took me a long time to do it because the first few times I tried to do it, got kicked back and it's, it's a super frustrating process. You know, I knew that I needed it, but I, you know, it got rejected a few times. I'm like, Oh, this is so annoying. And I actually had to hire an attorney to, to finish and get it through. And they're very specific on how things get submitted and, and how things get approved. But I had an issue. I had an issue like many years ago, named my business Satellite Investigations, and somebody opened up something that was very, very, very close, you know, and they were operating out of Brooklyn. It was a like retired police officer or whatever. And I basically had to contact the guy. I was like, listen, cease and desist, man, because it's too close to to what I have already. And I've been around for eight or nine years, right? And um he ended up going out of business or just retiring or whatever. So it ended up not being a big deal, but I had stumbled across it because I had checked the department of state website every now and then I'll pop my business name in there uh, just to see. And something came up and I was like, well, how did they even let that through at department of state? Because it was really, really, really close. Uh, but yeah, that whole process, you know, if, if you're an investigation company or if you're a business owner, you need to trademark service mark. You need to do all that stuff. It's pay the money for it. It's really, really important. Yeah, often it's 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 expensive, and there's other ways. If you seek out a qualified um, trademark attorney, patent attorney, yeah. IPR attorney for the global uh, right. uh, market, and uh, see what you can do, what's applicable, what's not. Uh, there may be state trademark. There could be a, a few other things. I'm not specific enough in the law of those to um, speak about it. But sure. yes, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to wind down things here. Um, what would you recommend the, the average investigator if they get contacted by somebody looking to have this, this work done? Let's say it's not even, uh, another investigator that's trying to sub out to them. I'm talking about a professional corporation that they've established a relationship that says, we're having this problem. We'd like to get you involved to hire you to do this. And this person's like, well, this is way out of my pay grade here. What would you be your recommendation to them? How should they approach it? Um, you obviously don't want to turn the work away. What would you sure. recommend they do? And the way uh, I would perceive uh, that to occur. So Matt, for example, if um, XYZ company contacted you and said they want you to uh, handle some uh, counterfeit matters for them, trademark cases, you would call me up since you know me yeah. and you say, hey, Stu, I have this client. Yeah. And so we would work out uh, some arrangement mm. and uh, I would work with you you would bring me in and we would go meet with the client and we would explain that I'm the subject matter expertise. Mm -hmm. However, we need boots on the ground to do specific things and we need to have uh, your involvement, my involvement, and we can solve your case based on what you tell us. Right. Uh, one more question before we wind things down. How often do you see your particular industry, this, this whole intellectual property being reactive and not being proactive? Hmm. Interesting question. I would have to say that when something is in your face and it's reported back to the company, quite often they are reactive, but we also are contracted to seek out if 
counterfeits in the marketplace under the auspices of an attorney. They'll say, we believe that there's counterfeits being sold of our product on the New Jersey boardwalk in, let's say, Wildwood, New Jersey. Great boardwalk, by the way. <laughs> it's a great boardwalk, and I've walked it many times. I like Ocean City better, but hey, whatever. <laughs> and we would go, and I've been on that boardwalk as well, and we've uh, arrested uh, folks with the um, local police department there many times. Yeah, sure. And um, matter of fact, uh, we get a lot of calls from law enforcement right. that say that our patrols saw somebody selling counterfeit uh, plush animals with you know, uh, Joe on there. Yeah. And uh, we would then uh, take that information, would contact the brand owner and say, hey, we got a call from law enforcement and they would like to do something. So they would authorize us to begin the investigation to determine whether or not the items were in fact counterfeit. Are they selling them? Are they selling them in large enough quantities right. and build a case and work with law enforcement at to such a point where they must take over the case because we can't work simultaneously right. on a case with law enforcement. Yep. And uh, they may ask us for specific information relative to the subject matter and we help them with that right. or any guides or any affidavits that may be needed. Sure. Sure. Well, this is uh, this has really been great, Stu. I, I really appreciate it. Again, I, I love talking to different investigators that do things that I don't do, uh, just because you know I, I like to learn about things. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. How do folks get a hold of you if they have any questions? Uh, there is our telephone number of 800-355-1199, and my specific extension is two two two. Our website is www.stumar S-T-U-M-A-R-I-N-V.com mm -hmm. or Google my name, Stuart Dropney, and our website will come up awesome. and or contact yourself or look on Investigative Toolbox, which right. is a great tool right? Yep. and uh, is utilized by our offices. Uh, yep. We've just uh, become a, a member and there is a plethora of information on there. Thank you. So uh, I would recommend looking for me there and other qualified investigators. Sure, sure. All right, great. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we'll catch everybody on the next show. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Stu, for joining us today. What a great source of knowledge. Make sure you reach out to Stu Moore Investigations if you need any help with this type of work. We also want to thank Crosstracks, Merlin Locate, Scope Now, NCISS, Secure FBI Directory, and the PI Institute of Education for sponsoring the show. Don't forget to check out investigatorstoolbox.com. You can join through the app, available on iOS and Android platforms. You'll be able to access the whole site right from your iPhone or Android phone. There's no better time than today to finally sign up for the site. For just 49 cents a day, you can take advantage of some great networking, training, and data resource management. Use code PIP201836 to save an extra 20 bucks. If you have a comment or question about the show, email Matt at MatthewS at SatellitePI.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd like your feedback to bring you the best shows possible. And we'll be back on Monday with a new show, so make sure you tune in. Now stay safe out there.